Welcome to the Berkeley Journal of International Law's podcast, Trevo. I'm your host, Haley Duradawan, and this is The Current State. Hi, everyone. I'm Haley Duradawan, and today I will be talking with Angela Chen about the Ukraine crisis. Hi, Haley. The ongoing Ukraine crisis has been a center of international affairs discussions these days. Before yesterday, many people speculated about the possibility of a Russian invasion of Ukraine and what the invasion would look like. Now that an invasion has already taken place, the current situation reveals to us the false promise of international law, as well as the iron law of realpolitik. Can you give us a brief overview of realpolitik? Definitely. Realpolitik is also known as realism in international relations. According to realist international relations scholars, the world is an anarchy, which means that there is no world government, and states can only resort to self-help to guarantee their security. In an anarchical international system, states often play by the logic of the jungle. In Thucydides' famous formulation, in the international arena, quote, the strong do what they can and the weak suffer what they must. States are uncertain about the intention of other states because the friend of today could become the foe of tomorrow. In a world where there is no world government, where states' intentions are unknowable, and where states possess significant offensive capabilities, states fear each other. These basic premises of realpolitik are especially true for what international relations scholars call major powers. Major powers do not want unfriendly powers in their backyard, which is why the U.S. is wary of the presence of other powers in the Western Hemisphere. As two examples, just look at the Monroe Doctrine and how the U.S. responded to the Cuban Missile Crisis. And it is also why China today doesn't welcome U.S. presence in the Asia-Pacific. Having other unfriendly powers in a major power's own backyard means that other countries are free to cause instabilities in its immediate neighborhood, jeopardizing its sphere of influence and even territorial autonomy. How are these basic premises of realism related to the Ukraine crisis? What do you think is well important for people to know about this topic? International relations scholars have always seen Ukraine as the potential post-Cold War flashpoint since the end of the Cold War. Ukraine is situated at the fault line between the East and the West, and Ukraine was also the most important non-Russian republic in the Soviet Union. It was the largest, most populous, and most economically developed republic besides Russia. Only Kazakhstan was larger geographically. So it is natural that Russia would have an incentive to reclaim the country, or at least keep it within its sphere of influence. Ukraine is the buffer state between Russia and the West. Ukraine is also divided from within. It is ethnically diverse and politically divided. There are significant Russian-speaking populations in eastern Ukraine. Further, people are politically divided, as people in western Ukraine would like to join the EU, and people in the east are less interested. NATO expansion and EU expansion since the end of the Cold War have signaled to Russia that the West is intent on taking away Russia's vital buffer state and staying in its backyard. EU expansion revolves around the economy, while NATO expansion is about the military or security. NATO expansion is naturally seen as more threatening than EU expansion and is of greater concern to Russia. Since the end of the Cold War, there have been two major waves of NATO expansion. In 1999, Former Soviet states such as Poland, the Czech Republic, and Hungary joined NATO. In 2004, 
Baltic states such as Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Romania, and Bulgaria acquired NATO membership. Since the mid-1990s, Russia made it clear that it wouldn't tolerate NATO expansion to its doorstep, but it didn't possess enough relative power to do anything to deter the West because the dissolution of the Soviet Union happened not too long ago. An example of the Western determination in absorbing Ukraine into its orbit is seen in the NATO declaration at the Bucharest summit in April 2008. At the summit, NATO declared that they welcomed Ukraine's and Georgia's Euro-Atlantic aspirations for membership in NATO. They also agreed that these countries would become members of NATO. In response, Putin stated that Georgia and Ukraine becoming part of NATO was a direct threat to Russia. The 2008 war between Georgia and Russia demonstrated Putin's resolve. The U.S. has been keen on promoting democracy in Eastern Europe. Color revolutions are examples. The Orange Revolution in 2004-5 in Ukraine made Russia wary of the U.S. democracy-promoting operations and its geostrategic goals. The EU has also encouraged Ukrainians to see their future in binaristic terms, that their future lies either with the EU or with Russia. Neutrality doesn't seem to be an option, although it remains unclear if NATO would even admit Ukraine, despite its official stance that Ukraine would one day join the alliance. And how can international organizations like the UN, per se, respond to the Ukraine crisis? Effective multilateral measures are usually carried out by the UN Security Council rather than the General Assembly, just because the Security Council has the power of enforcement. However, it is unlikely that the Security Council could really do anything. For any Security Council resolutions to be passed, no members of the Permanent Five can veto them. Russia would definitely veto any Security Council resolutions and sanctions against it, and China would probably veto as well. There is really not much the UN could do at this point. Other countries are free to implement sanctions against Russia, but just not through the UN. And what does Russia think about all these strategic advances by the West? It is in Russia's vital interest to keep Ukraine within its orbit. Although it, it was Russia that initiated invasion and aggression this time, it can be argued that its security posture is defensive rather than offensive and it's motivated by legitimate security concerns. The iron law of realpolitik is timeless. Balance of power rather than international law underlies Russia's geopolitical and geostrategic concerns. Russia sees Ukraine in existential terms, and security concerns always trump legal ones. In your opinion, how will Russia's invasion of Ukraine play out? Before Russia's invasion took place, many scholars and observers predicted that the invasion would take the form of salami tactic or fedagompli rather than a full occupation of eastern Ukraine or the entire country. A full occupation would turn Ukraine into a new Afghanistan for Russia. As a Russian security expert, Dmitry Trenin recently noted, Putin has little interest in occupying Ukraine. Putin had seen several waves of NATO enlargement and Washington's withdrawal from treaties governing anti-ballistic missiles intermediate-range nuclear forces, and unarmed observation aircraft. To Russia, the U.S. is intent on depriving Russia of its sphere of influence and even invading the Russian territories. Ukraine is the last stand for Russia. According to the IR scholar Paul Post, possible scenarios resulting from Russia's invasion include regime change in Ukraine, annexation of Ukraine to Russia, 
the recreation of a Russian empire and a major power war in Europe. None of these scenarios are desirable outcomes. Thank you for that amazing deep dive into what's going on here, Angela. What are the key takeaways that you want listeners to remember from this episode? I know that's probably difficult to do. I think neutralization of Ukraine seems to be the best and probably the only policy solution to the current geopolitical tension. As a major power, Russia would not allow the U.S. and its allies to take away its control over a neighboring area of vital strategic interest. And the West wouldn't allow Ukraine to become the second Crimea, although defending Ukraine is arguably of little strategic importance for the U.S., It would be best for NATO to publicly rule out its expansion into Ukraine. At the end of the day, the current crisis calls for solutions according to the logic of balance of power politics rather than legal formalities. And one final question for you, Angela. Where should people go if they want to learn more about your topic? Definitely check out different news outlets. I especially recommend Al Jazeera and BBC. Foreign Affairs and Foreign Policy are also great platforms for deeper analyses of this topic. Many IR scholars also share their thoughts and insights on Twitter. Fantastic. Thanks for joining us today, Angela. My pleasure. Thank you for listening. Travaux is brought to you by Haley Duradawan, Kayleen Kosla, and the members of the online team at the Berkeley Journal of International Law. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please write to us at berkeley.travaux at gmail.com. While we're committed to bringing you international and comparative law news and insight, our podcast is intended for academic and entertainment purposes only. The information presented is not legal advice and may not be current. Please check out the Berkeley Journal of International Law's blog, Travaux. See you next week. Au revoir.